Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, what's going on out there in the world? I hadn't spent much time thinking about the British monarchy. I guess I've always had a good American skepticism about the validity of the institution. But uh, Andrew Sullivan just wrote a really wonderful short piece, Mourning the Loss of the Queen, that gave me, I think for the first time, an appreciation of the value of a constitutional monarchy. At one point he quotes C.S. Lewis, who wrote, Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. I disagree with Lewis about many things. I've always thought his defense of Christianity was fairly risible. And I'm not even sure I agree with this quotation entirely, but there's something interesting there. And Sullivan continues writing, The crown represents something from the ancient past, a logically indefensible but emotionally salient symbol of something called a nation, something that gives its members meaning and happiness. However shitty the economy, or awful the prime minister, or ugly the discourse, the monarch is able to represent the nation all the time, in a living, breathing, mortal person. So uh, anyway, this, as I said, gave me something to think about as though for the first time. And it strikes me now that a monarch, when she or he is actually functioning as intended, is the opposite of a scapegoat. In the Bible, in Leviticus, the scapegoat is literally a goat that's imagined to contain all the sins of a community, and then is cast out into some wasteland to die, taking the sins of everyone with it. Now, of course, the phenomenon of scapegoating is something that happens with people, too, albeit unwittingly, and one can often see this. You can see a community on the verge of violence or just intolerable conflict can focus its destructive energy on a single person and use the obliteration of this person, whether in reality or just reputationally, as a way of resetting itself. Everything can go back to normal now that the witch has been burned. The philosopher René Girard wrote about this some, and one can see a lot of this online now. The way a community increases in solidarity by sacrificing individuals who commit some sort of blasphemy. Perhaps this point's been made many, many times because it seems somehow obvious, but the monarch in a constitutional monarchy seems like the opposite of a scapegoat, and Queen Elizabeth seemed to serve this role unusually well. She was the embodiment not of the community's sins, but of many of the virtues it didn't even have, right? Virtues like discipline and dignity and self-restraint, right? The sacrifice of self to the institution, which the queen demonstrated to an incredible degree. She was a kind of anti-celebrity. She was perhaps the most famous woman on earth, but she was really a cipher. She subordinated everything to the role that she was meant to play. It simply wasn't about her. In place of her personality, she functioned as a kind of symbol of service to her country and of patriotism, and of civility, 
and continuity and stability. So in venerating the crown, people were venerating all of these things. And as Sullivan points out, all of these things are markedly absent in society at this point. Anyway, culturally and personally, all of this is quite foreign to me, but I can understand it. And I can understand why so many people felt so personally touched last week by the Queen's death. Which brings me to something that happened on social media that seemed to typify all that's wrong with social media itself and with our larger culture. A professor at Carnegie Mellon University wrote the following on Twitter when the Queen was on her deathbed. She wrote, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. And then she wrote a series of tweets defending this tweet after Twitter removed it. So anyway, this professor became Twitter famous when Jeff Bezos reacted to her tweet, I think. I'm not even going to name her. My intention, needless to say, isn't to make a scapegoat of her. I think I just want to point out that she's probably not this terrible a person in real life, right? I I think the existence of Twitter is largely to blame for what's happening here. She's clearly a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, right? So she's talking to a cult and being rewarded for it. And social media is what is providing the incentive here, as well as the mechanism for her to broadcast this opinion. And it's providing the mechanism for everyone else to discover just what an aberrant person this woman is, or or seems to be, right? And to react to that. And there's no possibility of anyone persuading anyone of anything. Right? So our conversation more and more is conforming to the epistemology of the mob. And by mob, I mean not mafia, but the crowd. And the mob is unreasoning, more or less in principle. And it's unprincipled. It has no limiting principles. It has no mechanism by which to detect or even care about its errors. It's just pure advocacy and agitation. It's continually shrieking about the worst of its opponents. And it's determined to see the worst in them. Now, I've experienced this both from the right and from the left, and it's not fun coming from either side, obviously, but what one sees, once one ceases to take it personally, is the dysfunction of it. How people aren't even making contact with the problems they're purporting to respond to, all the while growing increasingly certain that they are responding to some kind of moral emergency. And what's more, that they're making progress toward solving it. Anyway, I really think life is better than it seems online. And yet I'm increasingly worried that the distortions of reality one gets online is feeding back into the world and making people more cynical and more distrustful and more despairing of making progress. I think social media is making us less capable of living good lives together. Anyway, this is in part the subject of today's conversation. Today I'm speaking with Jonah Goldberg. Jonah is editor-in-chief and co-founder of The Dispatch and the host of the Remnant podcast. He's a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, 
an LA Times columnist, a CNN commentator, and the author of three New York Times bestsellers. And he also worked at National Review for two decades. And today we speak about the whole catastrophe, really, focusing mostly on the state of American politics and civil society. We discuss the hyperpartisanship of the left and the right, what Trump has done to the Republican Party, the breakdown of trust in institutions. We discuss this new catastrophism enabled by social media, the problem of populism, and other topics. And despite all of those dire things, I thought we ended on a refreshingly hopeful note. And now I bring you Jonah Goldberg. I am here with Jonah Goldberg. Jonah, thanks for joining me. It is truly a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've never spoken. I've spoken to some of your friends and colleagues, most recently David French, but uh, I've admired your work from afar for years now. And uh, perhaps you can summarize your background politically and as a writer. How do you describe your um, Pilgrim's Progress at this point? Sure. Let's see. I, I sort of grew up in a pretty political family. Both my parents were, at one point or another, journalists. My mom was something of a famous troublemaker. She was involved in that Lewinsky scandal stuff and some other scandals, to be mm-hmm. honest. And I, uh, and we were, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We were always politically conservative, so we were a bit like Christians in ancient Rome in that sense. And my first job in Washington was at the American Enterprise Institute as a research assistant. I was there or adjacent to it for much of the 90s. And then I came over to National Review, where I was the founder of National Review Online and the founding editor of National Review Online. And I was at National Review in one capacity or another for 20 years. Um, in that time, I worked, I was, a cons- I was a contributor to Fox for about 11 years. and. I mean, my, my, my conservative bona fides, the only reason I'm bringing this up is I'm making assumptions about why you want me to lay this stuff mm-hmm. out are pretty solid. I mean, I, I, I joke and it's funny cause it's true. I met Pat, Pat Buchanan at my bris. <laughs> um, and so hopefully he didn't perform the bris. No, I, I have friends who think that maybe this explains some of his <laughs> problems with Jews. It's like, my God, what do these people do? Um, but, um, and then, um, in the run-up to, in 2015 and 2016, I was one of many conservatives who was deeply troubled by Donald Trump and thought this was a bridge too far and um, was troubled by the rise of populism on the right. And, and then the ranks of people who saw the world the way I did shrank quite rapidly over time until it was me, David French, and you know maybe a dozen or so other people written three books. I'm very interested in, in intellectual history, particularly conservative intellectual history. And, and I, I, I'm a syndicated columnist, I've been writing for the LA Times for about 17 years, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you have the, the Dispatch. Your, your main platform now is The Dispatch, which you yes. co-founded, right? My, my, uh, and thank you for bringing that up because my, my co-founder would scream at me if I didn't mention it. Yeah. In, a couple of years ago, Steve Hayes and I, Steve was formerly the editor of The Weekly Standard, we launched the dispatch, which is a, you know, unabashedly right of center, but fact driven place that is trying to prove that you can do honest, serious reporting and analysis from the center, right. With 
outdoing a lot of the fan service you see on a lot of the parts of the right. In some ways, when I try to explain it to people of a certain age, um, I compared a little bit in terms of the, the, the editorial philosophy to the New Republic in the, in the 1980s and early 90s. It's, you knew it was coming from a generally liberal perspective, but it also had, a, in a more classical sense, a liberal attitude of, of rejecting sort of cant and piety, of being willing to call BS on its own side and trying to do reporting um, with some famous failures, but trying to do reporting that was trying to engage in making serious arguments that took the other side's arguments seriously. And that's sort of the spirit that we would like to have at the dispatch. It's been going very well. We're, we're leaving Substack soon because we launched on Substack as a full publication. Mm -hmm. But since our launch, I believe, I believe it's still true. It, we, it, maybe there's something going on in the last six months I haven't looked at. But since launch, we've been the number one revenue generating product on all of Substack. And um, it's nice. gone very, very well. And, um, and we've assembled a great team of about, I don't know, 25, 28 people. And we're growing even more every day. That's great. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Though I do, I do think it's a troubling sign of the times that uh, we're all having to rebuild civilization in this piecemeal <laughs> way on our own. And uh, we'll talk about the failure of institutions, which I, I know is a concern we share. But um, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I like you um, putting your, your conservative bona fides up front is that one, you know, I, I, I don't have them, right? I, I have mm -hmm. been traditionally a liberal. I have, I have never voted Republican for anything, you know, on any point, I don't think, certainly not for president. And yet I'm often attacked as a partisan whenever I say anything negative about Trump. And my, my argument has always been that there really is nothing intrinsically partisan in noticing his unfitness for office and the um, corrosive effect he's had on our politics, which is to say that there's almost nothing, really you know, absolutely nothing I, I say about him that I would be tempted to say about a Republican like uh, Mitt Romney. Right. And it is also true that I spend more of my time criticizing the left at this point for all of its obvious failings. So it's just good to have someone like yourself or David French or David Frum or you know, many of the never Trumpers to talk to on that particular point. And it's also interesting that it's just you know, while we are coming from different places politically, I think we will agree about almost everything with respect to the the failings of Trumpism and the, the failings of the far left. And it's just it there really is a reshuffling of political intuitions here on many fronts. And um, so, yeah. Anyway, I think it's it's. No, it's I, I think it's a good point, and yeah. I've made a similar point many times. It's like if you're willing to reject the the sort of the groupthink of either political party and stand up for, I mean, we're going to talk about institutions, but this sort of simple liberal institutions that define much of what it means to be an American in a political, at least in a political and in, in some ways a cultural sense too. If you're classically liberal at heart, where you're willing to engage in good faith arguments and deal with, with inconvenient facts in a good faith way, that that makes you something 
of an outlier from either side these days. And I'm yep. not trying to do a symmetry between, you know, it's not a lot of people understandably hate the both sides thing, but there is this, there is a remarkable, you know, mirroring going on among the, the sort of the hard left and the populist right in terms of embracing identity politics kind of arguments, tribalist kind of arguments. And, and so there are people, you know, like you, again, we've never spoken, but like people like you, people like Jonathan Haidt, I can, you know, mm -hmm. list a bunch, uh, Yasha Monk, who probably profoundly disagree with me about various public policies, but agree with me about sort of on the, on the epistemological level and agree with me on the sort of basic systemic, or I agree with them on the basic sort of systemic le level about what are the institutions, customs, norms, mechanisms, whatever you want to call them, that preserve and define a free society. And that creates this weird sort of cross, cross trans-ideological kind of fellowship that I do think is, is oddly, I don't, I don't know if it's totally new in American politics, but it's, it's, if it's been around, it hasn't been, it, it's, it feels new, at least in my yeah. lifetime. Yeah, it, it certainly feels new. And I, I, I don't know how distorting a lens social media has thrown over it, but it, it does feel new. And um, I want to talk about the pathologies as we see them on the right and among Republicans, but I don't want us to exclusively focus on that. I really want us to talk about what it would mean to repair our society at this point, because I think many of us are asking whether we're witnessing the beginning of the end of, of our political and social order in some sense. And uh, I, the, the breakdown of trust in institutions is certainly part of that. And perhaps the most galling part of that is that in many cases, the loss of trust has been well-earned, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is, it's not just that people's attitudes have changed. It's just that there has been a breakdown of competence on so many fronts and in so many crucial moments that um, it's fairly phantasmagorical at this point. And it extends from everything from public health messaging from you know, the CDC and the FDA to you know, scientific and governmental institutions in general. It encompasses the media in all its forms, from journalism to Hollywood. There's now a serious question about whether we can run free and fair elections. And even if that's not really in doubt, there is a serious concern that large segments of society will no longer trust the results of free and fair elections when we do run them. And there are new institutions that are proving corrosive of social order. I'm thinking in particular of social media. And it does this in part by amplifying our doubts about everything and exaggerating the severity of, of real problems, but also by inventing imaginary ones. And it has just been a factory of lies and misinformation at a scale we've never seen before. And so, the, you know, if, to my eye, what we have now, we have people on the far left who think that, that racism and other forms of bigotry have, in some sense, never been worse. Mm -hmm. And you, you've got someone like J.K. Rowling, who is, who is their idea of a moral monster. And then we've got people on the far right who think that the, you know, at the far extreme of the far right, you know, way out there in Trumpistan, they think the world is being controlled by child-raping cannibals. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a radical core of craziness that is 
touching a lot. I mean, it shouldn't have as much political surface area as it does, but it really is distorting. And and again, it's it's hard to know how much social media is magnifying this and how much that the mere magnification of it is itself feeding back into creating you know real problems and and so there's like there's like a new religion of catastrophism that is you know in many cases an exaggeration i think but also the exaggerations result in a level of of cynicism and distrust that can become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy so i i guess that's that's my general picture of, of what we're living through now i don't know if it departs at all from yours but what is your view of american society at the moment yeah so i let me put it this way. I have days where I agree with you entirely. <laughs> and then I have days where like, maybe I'm too online. I'm too in yeah. a bubble. Maybe I'm taking the, the shadows on the wall of Plato's cave too seriously, which is a lot of, you know, the social media stuff. If you, you can do these gut check things, like when you see a wildly viral tweet that has 5,000 likes or 10,000 likes, and then you say, okay, that's, as many people as would fill a decent sized high school football stadium in Texas. And you're like, it gives you a sense that, you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on in America. Most people aren't on Twitter. Yeah. Most people aren't taking their cues from it. You know, the, the, the sort of Pareto distribution of how many people are extremely online and tweeting constantly, particularly political tweeting is very distorting. And I think it creates real problems for for democrats and democrat affiliated or you know sympathetic mainstream media you know we can get into it but you know in a sane political climate you know you know james carville would have and i'm not a huge james carville fan obviously but like james carville any old style serious politician the second they heard some democrats say defund the police mm -hmm. they would have gone on the phone and say shut up are you crazy and, you know, at the height of the defund the police stuff, the, all the polling said that um, something like 80% or upwards of people of color wanted the same amount or more policing. Yeah. No one wanted no policing. No one, and it, but this was one of these ideas that transmitted through this sort of pure Petri dish of blue checkmark bubble Twitter online stuff. And went straight into the blood veins of, of, you know, MSNBC and at the time CNN. And then, so even though it was a bullshit thing on Twitter, it becomes real because it goes on TV and then politicians are asked about it and have to take a position. And so the, it's, it's difficult to figure out whether some of this stuff matters or not, because it gets into the bloodstream, even though it shouldn't. And then once it's in the bloodstream, it becomes a, a real thing. Yeah. I, I think one, I wrote this book a few years ago called Suicide of the West, and, and part, of, part of my argument about where we are is that we, we increasingly, in part, and I think part of this has to do with the breakdown of civil society, the breakdown, uh, you know, the, the whole bowling alone thesis, mm -hmm. the, the cocooning that we're doing, where we're basically hiding in front of screens rather than engaging with human beings in real life. And one of the things that has led to is following politics like it's a form of entertainment. Yeah. And there's a thing that happens. I mean, you know this stuff better than I do, but there's a thing that happens in your brain when you follow entertainment. We allow ourselves to root for murderers, mm -hmm. bank robbers, you know, torturers, 
when we see them on the screen, so long as the, it's been clear that they're the, our hero or our anti-hero or whatever, and we forgive all sorts of behaviors that we would say should put you in jail, never mind make you a pariah. And the problem is, is that when you start following politics like it's a form of entertainment, you start, the, the sort of tribal mind kind of takes over, and you start judging things about whether your team is winning or losing, and you no longer care about the 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 norms the institutional rules and all that because in movies you don't care about that stuff you just want the hero to get the MacGuffin and in politics now so much of I mean, I'll give you an example it'll it, it'll feel partisan but I know we're going to do a lot of Trump bashing so I'll get the equal time in Barack Obama said I think it was 24 times maybe it was 28 times that he literally did not have the power to do DACA the deferred thing with the Dreamer kids. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, I'm not a king. The Constitution does not give me this power. Um, we don't live in the kind of society where I can just rule at a whim. And he said that for a, like a year. And then he realized that he couldn't get it through Congress. So he did it anyway. And the response from the leaders of the, you know, of the sort of the influencers and leaders of our political class, the journalists and, and so forth, if they weren't like objectively partisan Republicans, they all cheered about this courageous, you know, act of, of political morality mm. without caring that by, according to the president's own terms, he had just done something tyrannical and monarchical. Now you can agree with the policy. That's not my point. It's like the student loan stuff. The student loan thing that biden is proposing is lawless i mean it's like literally lawless and no one seems to care and i think it's sort of emblematic of of the way we follow politics because so many of the things that donald trump did were either certainly were either literally lawless or certainly in open and complete defiance to all traditions and norms of the job and that's what his biggest fans loved about him and it's particularly problematic as a conservative because, look, you, you guys on the left, your whole, you own the fact that you believe you're the forces of progress and that and the forces of change and the forces of reform and rewriting, you know, the face of society. That's, that's your bag and that's fine. That's an ancient and honorable thing to believe in, even if I have disagreements with it. But conservatism at a metaphysical level is supposed to be about preserving <laughs> Those things that mm. need to be preserved about preserve about loving this country as it is, not just for as it should be, for thinking that fidelity to the Constitution matters. And if all of a sudden the right joins this game in an even uglier, you know, fascistic kind of way, and just simply says it's all will to power, it's all about winning, it's all about whether my guy can punish your guy then that's really bad for America. It's fine when one party, it's not fine, but it's, it's tolerable when one party is the gas pedal and the other party is the brake. When both parties are the gas pedal, the whole thing can just fly apart. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one thing I think I hear you arguing for is that we maintain a sense of proportion. And in the spirit of doing that, I think we have to recognize that there are asymmetries on both sides of this continuum. So it's really like the game of both sidism doesn't quite work. And it, so it's the, the, there's one asymmetry, which um, accounts for why I've spent more time focused, I mean, as much as I bang on about Trump, I've actually spent more time focused on the problems of the left. 
And it's because the left has really captured culture and institutions mm-hmm. in a way that the right hasn't. You know, I mean, the, the, the morons who marched in Charlottesville don't have significant cultural power, but their equivalents on the left really do in, in that their arguments and, that their, and their moral intuitions have filtered into institutions that I actually care about, right? Right. So that, you know, the New York Times isn't being vitiated by Ku Klux Klan ideology, but it is being vitiated by a sense that, you know, racism is at the bottom of everything. And, right. and what's more, it's intellectually and ethically trivially easy, you know, to the point of just absolutely stultifying boredom to point out what's wrong with the far right. I mean, just, you know, mm-hmm. what's wrong with being a member of the KKK? Well, right. you know, just do we really have to do a podcast on that? Whereas what's wrong with the far left is genuinely confusing to smart, well-educated, well-intentioned people. I mean, what's wrong with Black Lives Matter? I mean, what could be wrong with that? What, what, how was the, the video of Derek Chauvin killing George Floyd not proof positive that we have a, an omnipresent problem with racist, sadistic cops killing young black men, right? I mean, that, that's, that's just confusing to vast numbers of smart people. And so that's, there's much more to pick apart there. But the other asymmetry that is truly enormous is in the political derangement of the Democrat and Republican parties at the moment and Mm -hmm. the way in which the Republicans have been captured by a personality cult under Trump. And this is something that, that again, people, people who defend Trump always get wrong. I mean, they'll point out the kinds of things you've pointed out, sort of like ordinary opportunism and cynicism and hypocrisy that, that happens within the, you know, the, the ordinary norms of norm violations politically. So, you know, Obama said he wouldn't do this thing and then, you know, 24 times, and then he did the, the very thing he said right. he wouldn't do. And so you, if you line those indiscretions up with the kinds of things Trump has done, well, then it seems like, okay, this is a both sides problem. You know, politicians always lie, right? That, you know, what's new about that? And many people saw in, in Biden's recent speech, you know, he's, he's doing the very thing we've accused Trump of. He, you know, struck a sort of very discordant, semi-fascistic uh, note in condemning a large part of American society. But it's just the wrong scale of comparison. And so here, here's an analogy that comes to mind, which it's not perfect, but it gets at it certainly doesn't capture the, the multiplicity of problems with Trump and Trumpism, but it captures the scale and maliciousness of the dishonesty that is, is really the under, underwriting the whole enterprise. And so just I would ask our listeners to imagine that, you know, especially any listeners who are still with us who you know, <laughs> would defend Trump here, imagine that rather than having President Biden, we had a President Jussie Smollett. Right now, I mean that may seem insane, but that's precisely how insane I think it is that we have a had a President Trump. I mean, just imagine for those who don't recall, Jussie Smollett was with this actor who who faked a an attempted lynching on himself. He he claimed that he uh, two MAGA people attacked him and put a, a noose around his neck and poured you know, some you know flammable liquid on him and tried to kill him because he's black and he's gay and they they said this is MAGA country and you know, inconveniently for his. Uh, Allegations. It, was, it happened to be twenty below zero that night in, in Chicago, and the, the idea that there were two guys running around in MAGA hats looking to lynch somebody seemed pretty far fetched. And his story unraveled. But he got on national television 
and you know talked about the, how harrowing it was to have been almost lynched. And he told what really is at bottom a a vicious and society shattering lie at scale. Right now, mm-hmm. imagine if he had been politically rewarded for this. Imagine if he was holding rallies with tens of thousands of people and whipping them up into a frenzy over the lie that he was almost lynched. In, in my view, that's really the scale of derangement we see among Republicans at the moment. This lie that the election was stolen, the lie that, and, and the fact that we had a, you know, a sitting president who wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power, and the party has defended him on this. That's what's just so far beyond the pale here, and it's quite divorceable from all of the policy concerns that are rational that would cause people to have defended Trump in the first place. I mean, it's totally rational to and, and defensible, and we, it's not necessarily my position, but we can argue about you know, whether we want to have less immigration or different immigration, sure. whether we want more economic nationalism whether we want fewer foreign entanglements, all of that is fine. But it seems to me what can't be argued for at this point is that it's acceptable to have had a president who is lying at this scale, uh, this maliciously, and deranging our politics that fully on that basis. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree with you entirely. I wasn't trying to do a... Just to be clear, I wasn't alleging that. I was just trying to connect the dots the way a Trumpist would. Yeah, no, I, 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 let me stipulate, I agree with you entirely in the sense that, you know, I mean, my late friend P.J. O'Rourke probably understated it, but it gets, directionally, it's the right point. In 2016, he said, look, something, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, look, Hillary Clinton is unacceptable within normal parameters. Hmm. Donald Trump is unacceptable outside of normal parameters. And I think that's right. Trump himself is sui generis in 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 a lot of ways. In so insofar as you know, he is. I've been issuing this challenge for seven years now to have somebody give me a definition of good character that mm-hmm. Trump can clear. Yeah, <laughs> and no one has done it successfully. And and many people have written thousands of words claiming that they've done it, and then you look for the actual sentence that says, here's why Jonah's wrong, you know, and it's, you know, like David Horowitz says, well, Trump, you know, is incredibly loyal to his family. Well, first of all, that is, even <laughs> if that were true, it's not even true. Is, it's not true, <laughs> but even if it were true, really? Like, mm-hmm. that is a threshold thing to say he has good character? I mean, like, we normally think that that's sort of, like, priced into, like, normal behavior, but it's not true. You know, this is the guy who cheated on his third wife while she was nursing their newborn with a porn star. I mean, he is he's famously vicious to his kids, not not his daughter, but his sons. Mm-hmm. There's one story that he uh I mean, we don't have to do that. I can go on autopilot about this stuff. But he was once when it was when his wife, his first wife suggested that they name their firstborn Don Jr., he said, We can't do that. What if he turns out to be a loser? Mm-hmm. And there is literally, I mean, I, I mean this very sincerely, there is no definition of good character, um, no matter how far out you wanna you wanna take it that Donald Trump can get a passing grade on. And I'm one of these, you know, fuddy-duddy conservatives who used to think that like emphasizing good character was an important thing to do in politics. Maybe not to the point where it was the only issue, but to me it's important. Good character also should not have an ideological valence. And this is just a 
sordid, narcissistic guy who, you know, I, I guess this is a good way to, I don't know if you've had my, my friend and colleague Yuval Levin on, but. No, no, but. I, so he, I like he wrote a wonderful book on, called Fractured Republic on the role of, I'm sorry, wrote another book called A Time to Build on the role of institutions in America. And I think he has a fundamental insight that gets at the broader landscape of why we're in the mess that we're in and why institutions are so sick. Normally, you know, institution is a lot of thing for economists. It's just a rule. But like when we talk colloquially about an institution, we think of an organization or some other form of, of association that molds character, right? I mean, the, the sort of cliched version of it would be, you know, you get some irresolute slacker or hippie, you put them in the Marines, they turn them into a Marine. Hmm. Uh, you, have, you have undisciplined little boys, you put them in the Boy Scouts, they end up helping little old ladies across the street. You go into the monastery, you come out a priest, right? There are things that institutions do to shape the individual for the greater good of the institution, and in the process, make the individual a better person along the way, or at least that's the hope. And the problem that we have today is that we no longer see, or too many people no, don't see institutions as mechanisms of character formation. Instead, they see them as platforms to perform upon, to, mm -hmm. to, to extract essentially rents or status from the institution for their own self-aggrandizement, their own glorification. And you see this in journalism all over the place. These journalists who use their association with, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or wherever, and they, you know, and, and then they go out and they tweet and they create their own cults of personality, their own brand. We can have a perfectly legitimate conversation about Colin Kaepernick and, and you can certainly say that the cause he was associated with is a, is a righteous cause. That's all fine. But there's no disputing that he used the NFL as a platform for his own issues. Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. You can go through a long list. And Donald Trump is, I don't know, the nay plus ultra of all of this. He used the presidency as a platform for his own personal cult of, pop, uh, of, of personality in ways that where he was commenting on things that the government was doing as if he was a pundit. He was using the mechanisms of power and of government to create an independent, informal base of power and adulation when normally, you know, what presidents do, whether it's Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan or whoever, you know, they bend their needs to a large extent to the needs of the presidency itself. Mm -hmm. it's, a it's a job that requires remarkable amounts of self-sacrifice. And Donald Trump rejected that entirely to make it all about him and the glorification of him. And that is something, I mean, I don't know enough about Andrew Jackson to say that we've never had this before, but it's, it's, it's certainly, we've never had it before in the age of modern media or anything like it. And he's done lasting and permanent damage, not just to our institutions in the country, but also, you know, my ballywick, which is conservatism, because conservatism is now being redefined into a kind of right-wing populism, which is antithetical to actually being a conservative. Well, it's often said that Trump is a symptom Right. He's not, it's it really the problem isn't Trump. The, the problem precedes him. I, I think there's some truth to that, but he's also a cause mm -hmm. of further symptoms. Right. I mean, he's he's the product of hyper partisanship on both the right and the left, but he's also made that partisanship much worse. 
And so, and he's also a symptom of the of the loss of trust in institutions. But he's also made everything on that front worse too. So there, there's obviously there's a, a dialectical nature to all of this. So he's made the he's he's made the right worse, and he's also made the left worse. That's and right. Then, and then the left becoming worse has given much more energy and justification even for Trumpism, right? So it's like I mean, almost everything that Trumpists decry on the left is something that is worth worrying about on the left, right? And and as as the left turns up the volume of their, you know, moral panic over pronouns or whatever it is, it's understandable that it's causing the right to go berserk. But the, this mutual reinforcement is really unhealthy. I agree entirely. So there's a quote from Orwell, which I use often to make this point. Or Orwell, I think it's in politics in the English language, where he says, a man may take to drink because he feels himself a failure but then fail all the more completely because he drinks. Right. And I think that's sort of the dynamic. We had problems that led to Trump, but Trump made all of those problems worse. It's almost Tolkien-esque how this creature yeah. brings out and distorts the worst in his enemies too and provides justification to hate the enemies even more. And it's, it's very depressing if you get too caught up in it. Mm. Well, what's been your experience? First, remind me, I called you a never Trumper. I imagine, in fact, that was the case. What, what, when did you get off the the train? Was it before it even started leaving the station for um, Republican politics in 2015? I guess. And what was your experience having done that among your your fellow conservatives? <laughs> uh, this is a complicated story. Yeah, so I was never on the train. I, uh, in fact, <laughs> there's a reporter who told me I'm one of the reasons. Very small one, but I'm one of the reasons why Trump ran, because I had written a column saying of the current Republican field, I could live with any of them except for Trump and George <laughs> Pataki. And apparently Trump read that because it was in the New York Post and apparently slumped in his chair and said, why don't they respect me? And, um, and that was one of, the, one of the data points in this mm -hmm. longer thing about how he had to prove himself. Yes, yeah, so I, was, I, was, I was integral to this famous or infamous in my world issue of national review called the against Trump issue where Rich Lowry, who was the editor invited a bunch of people from across the, the firmament of the right to make the argument for sort of a popular front for why we should reject Trump. And I encouraged him to do it. I, I was, I was, I was, I was one of the big forces internally advocating for that. I'm still very proud of it. It is now called the never Trump issue, even though that wasn't a word at the time. Mm -hmm. So I, I was never persuaded by Trump. And part of that I think has to do with the fact that I actually grew up in New York city in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And so I just always, you know, Donald Trump was a fixture of tabloids my entire childhood. And I always considered him sort of a clown. And anyway, I, I can get in the weeds on that, but in 2015, where I started to despair was that I started getting really sort of mostly on social media, you know, I'm not saying I had like, you know, I had to call the police or anything like that, but the amount of just wild anti-Semitic stuff that was being thrown at me back then for not being pro-Trump was just off the charts. Mm -hmm. And I think the ADL did a study and I came in, I think I came in sixth as the target, the, the, the sixth worst target of anti-Semitic hate in, in social media that period. 
And anyway, the what bothered me about that was not that there were troll farms or that there were crazy alt right guys coming up and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it bothered me, but like I could tell, I could process that. What bothered me and what seemed to me to be a really bad and sinister omen was the failure of so many other people on the right, people I considered friends, colleagues, peers, role models, who just stayed silent amidst all of that and sort of rolled their eyes at the idea that I might be troubled by that. Hmm. And I remember I got into a, I, I'm glad I changed his mind, but I got into a big fight with the talk radio uh, host, Hugh Hewitt, where he was making the argument that the alt-right are just disaffected tea partiers and they need to be part of the larger coalition of the right and we need a popular front. Um, this was back at the time where Steve Bannon was talking about how he wanted Breitbart to become the platform for the alt-right. And the thing is, is like, because I've been at National Review for, you know, since, since 1998, I've been dealing with the fever swamp racists on the right for a very, very long time. You know, I, I, and if you actually know the, the, the sources that they're reading, that they're the, the intellectuals or pseudo-intellectuals that they're invoking, there's simply no way, the whole point of National Review, you know, it came too late to this, but it eventually, to its credit, came to this was to read these kinds of goons out of the respectable conservative movement. And now all of a sudden, because they were provi providing, you know, esprit de corps and energy, and they were online and they were young and they had Milo and all those guys boosting this stuff, and they were for Trump, and Trump would not denounce them, all of a sudden this popular front argument just, just crushed all opposition and said, you know, let, let, let these guys in. And, and, and at just at a very fundamental level, the idea that I'm the stick in the mud and the, the weird one for responding to a bunch of people who literally say the world would be a better place if my entire family had been reduced to an ashtray in the ovens of the Holocaust, hmm. that I'm the weird one for not wanting to hang out with them, for not wanting to find common cause with them. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, all of these people condoned this stuff. They just didn't think it was something that was worth energy and, and, and making a fuss out of it lent aid and comfort to the Republicans, you know, to the enemy. Mm -hmm. And it was this sort of, this sort of mass sort of delusion and psychosis that kind of took over vast parts of the right. I wrote a piece, I think it was in March of 2016, that got a lot of, it's what Charlie Sykes credits for basically saying, all right, I'm done with, with conservatism as we know it is. I, I wrote this piece, I think it began, if this is what conservatism is going to be, this is where I get off. And, and I wrote about how I felt like I was living in, in an Invasion of the Body Snatchers movie. Because people who I knew knew better would one day be telling me how Trump was unfit for office and we got to do everything we have to do to stop him. And the next morning, it was like they slept next to a pod mm -hmm. <laughs> and woke up and said, now under comrade Trump, we will have the greatest wheat harvests east of the Urals we've ever had. You know, it became this just bizarre madness of crowds thing. Yeah. And I have lots of theories about why it happened and why it happened to certain individuals. But for me, and I, I got to say, I, I did not leave National Review because it happened at National Review. It, it did not. But it felt like over time I was more and more of a problem for national review mm -hmm. for refusing to sort of say 
you know, let's give the guy a chance and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he's better than Hillary and all of these kinds of things. And even though, you know, I, I, I wrote some stuff, like I, I called myself a never Trumper during the, pre, during the primaries and the presidential campaign. Cause for me, what never Trump meant was never going to endorse the guy, never going to vote for the guy. But then after he was elected, I wrote this piece called, you know, something like never Trump, never more or something like that. Because he's president and you only have one president at a time. And, and I explained that like the term never Trump doesn't really work anymore, but what I'm not going to do is lie. Hmm. And I'm going to continue to point out that this guy is unfit. I'm going to continue to point out that he doesn't know what he's talking about. If he continues to prove that I'm right. And he did. And the astounding thing to me in that whole period was how many people I thought had the same job description as me broadly understood write books, do TV, write columns, you know, general sort of public opinion journalist, public intellectual, whatever label you want to put on it. I always thought that the, that the sort of fundamental non-negotiable journalistic ethic was don't say or write things you, you do not believe to be true. And I was simply astounded by how many people didn't see their role the same way because it turned out a lot of people saw themselves more as proxies for a party or a, or a cause than they saw themselves as sort of people on the sidelines offering their honest opinions about what was going on. And I think that's part of the problem we have is that too many people on the left and the right, but have internalized party functions without realizing that they're not supposed to be. So is that how you explain the capitulations of ordinary Republicans at this point? Like that's when I ask the question, uh, why there are so few Liz Cheney's, for instance? Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is it just, is it opportunism and cowardice and just a, a supplanting of every other ethic by party politics? When I'm thinking, like I mean, an egregious example, I recall. I, 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 the truth is, I until this moment forgot he even existed. Uh, so fully has he disappeared from the public conversation. But at the time, I found his acquiescence to Trump and Trumpism just astounding and abject, and it was just a, quite a, a sight to behold. And that's a, this is all coalescing in the figure of Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. What happened to Paul Ryan? I mean, wait, like, how is it that you have someone who's like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know him personally. I, I don't actually know all that much about him, but I believe I know that he's a rational, normal, reasonably well-informed politician who n- must have known exactly what he was dealing with in Trump, and yet, you know, there was a just an absolute failure to acknowledge the obvious and. at least from the outside, just a total abdication of civic responsibility in trying to do something useful at at that point, or or really ever since. I mean, I'm not aware that he's ever come out and and performed an autopsy on on his uh, collaboration with Trump at the time. I mean, why aren't there a thousand Liz Cheney's in the Republican Party? So, I mean, this is a complicated subject and it's made all the more complicated because I do know Paul Ryan fairly well. Mm. And this is like one of the problems I have as a journalist is I try really hard not to become friends with politicians because in some ways, my, my dad always used to make this point that the most corrupting thing in life isn't money, it's friendship. 
Mm. You will do things for friends that you would never, if, if I called you up and said, I got $10,000 for you to give this kid an internship and you didn't know me from Adam, you'd say, screw you. But if, if we went to high school together and yeah. I said, hey, look, my kid's in trouble. Can you help me out? You might not, you might still say no, but you just be much more likely to do it. Yeah. And you, what you want to do is treat politicians like lab animals. And the one thing you never do with lab animals is give them names <laughs> because, you, you know, it's much harder to stick the needle in fluffy than it is test subject 14B. Yeah. So that said, I'm just saying that so people can discount my, my conflict here. I talked to Paul Ryan a few times during that period. And part of his argument you know, look, at the end of the day, Paul Ryan was a party guy. I think he was more courageous prior to the age of Trump than a lot of other party people, but that's not the point. What happened with Paul, at least in one respect, was going into the 2016 election, you got to remember, everybody thought Trump was going to lose. And what Paul was legitimately and fairly worried about was that if Trump lost by 10 points, Basically, every halfway decent Republican in a purplish district, you know, in a swing district, would get wiped out, and the only Republicans left would be the super Trumpy ones. And so he struggled with the best way as a party guy to do what was best for his members. Do I agree with every one of his decisions? No. But I, I, I think that, you know, Paul Ryan is a pretty good example of what I call a closet normal. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of Republicans, a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill who, I think the term in social science is lie <laughs> a mm. lot mm. about what they think of Donald Trump. And the greatest delta is between what a Republican says about Donald, an elected Republican says about Donald Trump when the cameras or the microphone are on and when they're off. And it's astounding to me and it's depressing to me, but I'd rather there be closet normals than the, than the ranks of the open abnormals, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and those people grow. So it's, it's part of this point you were pointing to earlier about the dialectic or catalytic nature of failure begetting more failure. I think that the more complicated, the more, the broad, if you want to broaden it out a little bit to I'll stay on politicians for a second. Part of the problem, and this gets to some structural problems, part of the problem is, is that politicians still care about incumbency and reelection as much as ever. But structurally, the incentives are to make sure that you don't get primaried rather than you don't, you don't want to lose in the general election because of the big sort and all the polarization. It used to be Democrats would tack to the left in the primaries to get the nomination. And then the powers of incumbency usually prevented them from ever having a primary challenger. But then in, in, the, and in the general election, they would swing back towards the center, knowing that they're going to get the Democrats and they needed X amount of independents or swing voters or moderate Republicans. Same thing on the right. Swing to the right for the nomination and then swing to the center for the general election. Now, because of everything from the big sort and gerrymandering and all of those things, the pain point, the, the existential threat point to staying in power is the primary, not the general election. Right. And so, I mean, I can't tell you how many people just will say it openly that they, they are limited in what they can say and do because 
if they cross Trump, they get primaried, like Liz Cheney was, like a lot of these people were. It's not a profile in courage by any stretch of the imagination, but it is, it is one of the structural problems that we have in the system is that the, the people who take the most extreme positions are actually taking the most conservative path to staying in power mm. because, uh, because of the way the, 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 the system is arrayed. I personally think the primary system is a disaster for this country. And this is, one of, again, one of the structural things uh, that I'm somewhat obsessed about is that we are, in effect, the only advanced industrialized democracy in the world whose parties voluntarily gave up the ability to pick their own nominees. Instead, we've just basically outsourced it to voters, whereas in the past, I'm not saying the smoke-filled rooms were great, but the smoke-filled rooms kept crazy people mm. from the presidency. And now Donald Trump ran by going around the party establishment because the party establishment is so weak, not that it's so strong. Weak parties create strong partisanship and voters. And what happened was Donald Trump basically went over the heads of the party establishment and waved the bloody toga and the crowd, you know, caused all of these people to fail. If either party were interested in the long-term health of its own reputation and brand, we would not have had many of the candidates we've had in the last couple cycles, yeah. but they're basically marketing firms that are just, or as my friend Ross Douthat likes to put it, they're like fully fueled jets sitting on the tarmac waiting to be hijacked. Mm, that's interesting. Well, obviously the return to smoke-filled rooms is going to be, um, it's going to, it's going to trigger many of the concerns that gave us Sure. The the populism on the on on the right and the left that we're we're dealing with, uh, which we can talk about, and I, and I promise we wouldn't focus entirely on Trump. Uh, so I want to turn to some of that in a minute. But I guess just to to close on on the orange topic for the moment, what I think we're faced with is just a total failure of persuasion. That um, at this point, I, I have very little hope we can resolve. I mean, I, when, whenever I talk about Trump. What comes back to me, I mean, you know, some of what comes back to me is rational, but very, very little of it. I mean, it's more and more it has the character of having talked about L. Ron Hubbard to a, mm -hmm. a, a Scientology conference. You know, it's like, yeah, of course, good what analogy. I'm going to get back is just insane, right? I mean, it's like there's not, you know, not the slightest concession to any of my premises, however rational and, and well-documented. So... I guess my question to you is, is there anything useful to say to Trump's defenders at this point? In, in terms of persuading them that they're wrong? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, like, how do we, how do we, burn, if we get from whatever the path is to actually rehabilitating conservatism and the Republican Party and bringing it back within the bounds of normalcy, shaking off the personality cult and the the vapors of QAnon, does that look like just, you know, people age out of it and we just, it magically disappears, you know, the, the spell lifts and no one really had any debate that accomplished it? Or is there actually something to say by way of persuading a, a sufficient cohort of people that could make a difference? Yeah. So the good news is, is that the sufficient cohort of people is actually quite small and quite powerful insofar as you know look donald trump 
didn't get a majority of the vote. We all know that. Donald Trump, except for one garbage Rasmussen poll, I don't think ever broke 50% his entire presidency in terms of approval, which means at the margins, you know, those Trump Obama voters, those swing voters, independents, whatever, they have an enormous amount of leverage to keep him from being president ever again. And this is one of the reasons why I think Joe Biden is being smart but cynical in elevating Trump in advance of the midterms because they know that that persuades a lot of voters who are not very approving of the Biden presidency to swing to his side. Because if it's a referendum on Biden, the midterms will be very bad for the Democrats. If you can persuade people, at least psychologically, that it is a choice between Trump and Trumpism and, and, and Biden, they'll go to Biden like they did in 2020. And so the reason I bring that up is that I think there are, even among people who would vote for Trump again if he were the nominee, which I find baffling, would even vote for Trump again in the primaries, which I find just beyond comprehensible on rational terms, there are people who want to see Republicans win again. And, you know, the, the biggest source of Trump's power from the beginning was how he channeled and fueled and amplified hatred of the other side. And that hatred of the other side is still, I think it's irrational and all that, but it's still very potent and important. And we see Ron DeSantis being quite skilled at exploiting it. And so I think if you can persuade a sufficient number of people that Trump loses again, or that Trump was to blame for the Republicans doing very badly in the midterms, I think at the margins as a political matter, you could see Trump not getting the nomination or not even seeking it because the one thing Trump really could not tolerate is losing again. Mm. And if you could convince him that a bunch of Republicans are going to run for president no matter what, and that he's going to actually have to fight for it. And that might, because Trump is ultimately a bully and bullies only like fights they know they can win. He might just, he wants a coronation, right? And so if you could Mm. prove to him that they won't get that, maybe it'll, that would work. In terms of persuading people who've drunk the Kool-Aid in effect, for those who aren't cynical and don't already know it and are just being performative, those who actually believe it in their hearts, I don't think you persuade them out of their beliefs. I think that the way out of this, I don't like it. Look, I want the scene at the end of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington where Claude Rains admits he was the villain the entire Mm. time he was wrong and Mr. Smith was right and all that. I'm not going to get that. And I can live with that. I'll be perfectly happy if Trump just doesn't run again and, and shrinks and the tumor just shrinks. But Ronald Reagan didn't go around in the 1970s vilifying Richard Nixon. He just talked about the future and kind of moved on. And that is not satisfying. It's not Mm -hmm. cinematic. But the way you, I mean, other than, you know, Trump passing from this mortal coil, the way you sort of get rid of him is just having him not in public office anymore. And that means the Republican Party just needs to move on from him. That's hard. It's going to be difficult. I think it's possible. I, I worry that a lot of the people who are thinking about running for president have very bad strategies about how they want to do that. but. If you know, I mean, I'm open to suggestions. I just know nothing that can convince 
someone who is all in on Donald Trump, why they're wrong, because they just, any facts you point to, they'll say, oh, that's made up, that's fake news. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, mm. I, I've given up trying on that front. But now what about the lingering effect of Trumpism itself? So you have people like DeSantis, who I think this can be said of, uh, there's, you know, or somebody like J.D. Vance, right, who's, who's obviously smart enough to know that he's trafficking in lies. I mean, that his audience is powerfully misinformed about terrestrial reality, you know, election lies and all the rest. But he's decided for, you know, reasons of political pragmatics, if not actual conviction, to pander to the mob, right? And to trumpet the big lie, etc. Let's say Trump doesn't run, but we have Trumpists running for um, the presidency in 2024. I mean, and this all of this is inconveniently mirrored on the other side by a Democratic Party that, to my eye, just has no plausible presidential candidate for 2024. Yeah. I mean, Biden is obviously too old, although one fears it's not obvious to him or, or the people in charge uh, in the de Democratic Party. And I think Kamala Harris is obviously unelectable. Uh, so I don't know who runs. So it really does seem like a situation where if he ran, Trump could win. But you know, if he doesn't run and it's DeSantis or somebody else, do you think that the pressure to be a populist demagogue uh, or, or the inclination to be one is, kind of magically disappears in, in the, um, you know, once we've closed the, the chapter on Trump himself? Or are you worried that the Republican Party is now a very different political organism? I have answers that are unsatisfying to a lot of people about this. I'm not a huge Ron DeSantis fan. I would not, you know, he would not be my first or second or third choice in a Republican primary. I don't much care about who I, but my vote generally anyway. I've never lived anywhere where my vote wasn't canceled out mm -hmm. seven to one. But if you asked me, would you accept Ron DeSantis as the nominee or as president if it meant Donald Trump obviously not being, it's a no-brainer to me. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think one of the things that Democrats and some of my more ardent never-Trump friends on the right just they they've kind of lost the the theme here or they lost you know it is they've lost the plot if you're going to try and turn ron DeSantis into trump then you're basically conceding that donald trump isn't all that abnormal and the thing is i i truly and sincerely believe donald trump is a unique given the current landscape a unique threat to democracy to institutions to the presidency to conservatism to the republican party name name the institution and i think he's a threat to it ron DeSantis, i think is is very much more like what pj was talking about about hillary clinton mm -hmm. um, from a liberal perspective is that he's bad but within normal parameters i do not think that ron DeSantis is a closet strongman and i think that one of the reasons he's not one is and this is something that has not gotten a lot of coverage, is he's not particularly charming, right? I mean, I don't get mm. Trump's charms at all, but people find him entertaining. People find him charming. If you've talked to anybody who spent any time with Ron DeSantis in person, he's a stiff. And um, he's got really poor interpersonal skills. And I suspect that that's going to come out as he campaigns.
But regardless, this is a guy who I, I just, you know, he's played hardball politics. I don't like some of the things that he's done. I think people misunderstand some of the dynamics of Ron DeSantis. I think he is more often in the egregious cases. He's a servant of the Twitter mob rather than an organizer of it. Like he, I don't think he wanted to do that crazy thing where he revoked that special status mm-hmm. for Disney World. It's just that the very online crowd said, go further. And he felt like he had to. And regardless, the point is, is that this is a guy who actually does his homework. He knows the policy issues. I'm not saying this to boost him as anything. I just think he is right now the most viable alternative to Trump. The problem with Trump is, is first of all, his character is just different. Uh, he's, you know, like Ron DeSantis went through the military, went through Ivy League schools. He has the ability to delay gratification and put his nose to the grindstone. Trump can't do any of that stuff. Mm. And moreover, Trump, as a, if you put him back in office, the consequences are just awful. He's already, he feels betrayed by the conservative justices he put on the Supreme Court. He would want pure sort of banana republic style, you know, put Pam Bondi on there. You know, let's get Michael Flynn back in here. Mm-hmm. The, he would put in true cronies and lickspittles and dangerous Bannon, Bannon ripoff types in positions of power. And I don't think our system could take it. Ron DeSantis wouldn't do that. You would have a, a flocking back of sort of respectable institutionalist Republicans who would be perfectly happy to work for Ron DeSantis, who would not work or would not be welcome in a Trump administration. And I think that when you try to make it like, like, you know, when Biden says these MAGA, you know, we had this tweet the other day that MAGA Republicans think that billionaires built this country, you know, and it's basically, it was a talking point they used against Mitt Romney. I think that is so dangerous to basically try and say that really MAGA Republicans are no difference, different than Romney Republicans. And it's dangerous because it allows the MAGA Republicans to completely write you off and it allows a lot of non-MAGA Republicans to say, oh, so your complaints really aren't about democracy. Mm. This is just partisan food fight shit. And that's a really dangerous place to go. That said, there are really bad people who have been welcomed into the Republican Party in, and sometimes into positions of power who are dangerous. And they are dangerous either because they are incompetent boobs who just simply believe the the sort of trumpian propaganda or because they are people who you know are truly hostile to our institutions i mean like what the i am not a fan of steve bannon i've known him a little bit for 15 years i think the guy basically has hooves Mm. But he is honest when he says he's a Leninist insofar as he really does believe in ripping down the existing institutions of our country. And yeah. he supports the kind of people that are either useful idiots in that cause or believe it too. And that's dangerous. I think a better analogy to this might be some of the sort of hardcore new left types who work their way into parts of the Democratic Party, you know, the sort of the weather underground adjacent types mm. of the 1960s that took the Democratic Party a long time to sort of say to either either they had to mature out or they had to sort of be self-disqualified. But ha- whatever analogy you want, it doesn't change the fact that these are dangerous, bad people. And the Republican Party is going to have a long, ugly cleansing process, whether it's successful or not, remains to be seen. Well, one of the problems I see that um, is 
more and more a bug, although it is it is thought to be a feature if you're really if you're far enough left or right. Actually, the, the truth is there's many places in the center here. I mean, it, it, there's this rise of contrarianism, mm-hmm. right? And it's been amplified by the, by the fracturing of, of media. So, I mean, social media has given it to us, but also you know, the very business models you and I have adopted, right? So you, you're out here in Podcastistan or in Substackistan, we are offering alternatives to the, the normal institutional Deliverances of of media or or you know f- you know thought leadership or anything else, and there's a taste for the non-standard explanation of everything now, right? Mm-hmm. So that, and this mm-hmm. you know the, the extreme version of this is conspiracy thinking, but the middling versions is just this pervasive uncertainty about you know, whether you can trust anything to be true, and you just you you wind up with this balkanized epistemology where everyone finds their curators of fact and opinion that they like and they silo themselves and it's just it's it really is a mess and it's a mess even in places where i otherwise respect a lot of what is being thought and said i mean so like i won't name names apart from the naming the name of the problem here but i mean one of the one of the strangest things to to witness in the aftermath of trump and wokeness has been the the apparent rehabilitation of Glenn Greenwald. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, Glenn Greenwald is celebrated by many people who I otherwise respect as this great defender of free speech. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the the irony is that you know there, there's no one who planted the seeds of cancel culture more avidly than he did. I mean, his his reaction to the the Charlie Hebdo atrocity was to attack the murdered cartoonists as bigots. Right, I mean, this is, mm-hmm. his core value isn't free expression; it's hatred of the West and of America in particular. But it's completely upside down, you know. Among again, many prominent podcasters and Substack writers, they think this guy is just is, is a fantastic champion of free speech and free thought because all he does is shit on established institutions, mm-hmm. and it's. Uh, that's the algorithm that everyone is running now that like the, the the incentives are such they're so perverse that there's nothing that the CDC or Pfizer or the New York Times or a CNN it, it, you can never trust them ever and what's real is something I mean you do your own research right is right. is is like you got to be you have to be an epidemiologist now you have to be a long form journalist you have to be a, pretty soon you're going to be cutting your own hair and making your own shoes because you can't trust anything in the establishment and that is you know that's not a just a trumpist problem that's a that's pretty much ubiquitous now what do you um and i guess that is the sort of the you lifeblood know, of populism too yeah what do we I do agree with, with you i agree with you entirely about this i think that you know the i mean glenn greenwald is a perfect example of this sort of phenomenon of it's sort of he's a incarnation of nearest to hand the weapon nearest to hand argumentation because he's now turned on sort of mainstream or left wing institutions Tucker Carlson loves him mm-hmm. but when he was turning on conservative or right wing institutions you know the left loved him and he's just basically um when he's fighting on your side because he's effective and he's intimidating and all these kinds of things your side embraces him and just forgives all past indiscretions and i think that sort of broadening out, you know, you sort of hinted at this at the beginning, 
I firmly, and I, I really sort of passionately believe that so many of the institutions that we have, I think, as you put it, earned the distrust that they have. And I think that the part of the reason for that is that no one will stay in their lanes. Mm. And, you know, like I thought when a whole bunch of epidemiologists said all that stuff about no large mass gatherings mm-hmm. was going to be <laughs> except, except for BLM, <laughs> except for BLM protests, the inability to understand how that would be received yeah. by people who were told, wait, so my mom's funeral is too dangerous, but yeah. BLM protests are okay. And then people would say, I mean, I remember, I remember there were a couple of epidemiologists who literally said, look, ending racism is more important than fighting COVID or words to that effect. Yeah. And I might be with you if you could persuade me that BLM protests were going to end racism, but no, they're not. And an epi- epidemiologist has no ability to have a, like a particularly informed opinion about whether or not mass protests that lead to riots are going to end racism. So maybe you should just say, this is what the science says and keep your mouth shut. Similarly, you find in, across you know, academia, you know that stuff better than I do, people feel like they have to talk about and teach about the, the trendy new you know, pieties that have come on down as the thing that everything has to be about intersectionality or racism or, or whatever. It's like, no, can't I just teach math? Right? And mm. the, the problem is, is that the people who aren't completely read in and completely bought in to the groupthink stuff say, well, wait a second, you're not staying in your lane. How can I trust you if you're, if, 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 if you're so obviously caving in to politics? And I think this, this, this works for the political parties too. And for politicians generally, I would have an enormous, I would have, I would have a lot more benefit of the doubt for Democrats to fundamentally transform America. If first they did things like make sure the schools worked or that garbage was collected, right? Do the job that is actually in your job description first, successfully and well, before you talk about wiping out institutional racism and all of these other things, because like why I should believe that you have the expertise to do these very complicated things you have a hard time even explaining when you can't do the very basic things that we expect from government. And the way this is infected journalism, where everything has to be about the trendy, woke, you know, shibboleths rather than sort of bread and butter reporting of facts, it causes, it sows immense distrust and makes people think, I can't believe any of these experts because they want me to buy into an agenda. Like I, I very much at the dispatch, we want to hire at some point an environmental reporter who does like all sorts of conservation and land use things who just doesn't write about climate change. This is not to say that climate change isn't important or real. I would think both those things are true, but not every environmental issue is about Hmm. Climate change. And when you say every single issue, every single heat wave, every single this, every single that is actually about climate change, there are people who understandably interpret that as this is political propagandizing. I shouldn't, I don't have to trust this. And they discount it. And I think that this is the problem across the, the landscape. And it's one of the things that led to, to, led to Trump. 
and you know, the internet feeds into it. There's all this disintermediation and all that, but there's this fundamental belief that no institution is doing its job because it cares about these other things more. And people pick up on that either consciously or subconsciously. Mm. Well, one job that may be impossible to do is moderating our tech platforms in a way that obviously improves human conversation and satisfies partisans who will see every misstep here and every inconsistency in the application of a term in terms of service to be um, just galling to the point of loss of sanity. Where do you come out on the steps and missteps of platforms like Twitter to police the speech, right? I mean, so I, like, like, I guess the, the sharpest case is the, the deplatforming of Trump or the deplatforming of Alex Jones. What are your thoughts about that? And, and I mean, it, it, you know, I worry that this just, in fact, may be an impossible job, but, you know, short of developing some AI that is more or less omniscient. What do you, yeah, what, so what, what are your thoughts? I'm very old fashioned about this. I think that private platforms, publications, whatever you want to call them, uh, should be allowed to moderate their content and their platform basically as they see fit. Now, that's just a sort of a legal philosophical standard. Yeah. There's a practical problem about how you actually implement that without pissing off a lot of people. And that's a perfectly legitimate and thorny problem. But like, I think it was perfectly fine that Steve Jobs kept porn out of the Apple store or mm -hmm. the app store, right? I think a lot of parents are probably glad that he did that. I think the Trump case is a little more complicated. I think you can make an argument that it was probably a philosophically wrong decision that was inarguably better for the country as a result. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, part of my problem, I, I, I honestly, I don't get that worked up about a lot of this stuff because I think that you know, part, it's sort of, it's, it's this codicil to the cult of victimology. Everybody wants to be a victim and there's, and we, mon we monetize victim and victimhood in this country incredibly well and efficiently and on a bipartisan basis and a sort of codicil to the cult of victimhood in this country, which I think Donald Trump is a high priest of, is this cult of, of censorship phobia mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, the, the one of the best marketing tools ever in America was to be able to say your book was banned in Boston. Mm. And it is amazing to me how many outlets love to immediately boast about how they were shadow banned or they were banned or they were suspended, often for legitimate reasons, sometimes not for legitimate reasons or, or defensible reasons. That's fine. But like, there's power in that. And and I don't trust, I mean, this is one of these places where I'm sort of part of the problem. I do not trust a lot of places and people who say that they've been, you know, censored or, or banned until I can actually do my own research and find out if it's true because it is, there's such a premium on claiming that you were particularly on the right. All that said, you know, look, Alex Jones, I think is short of someone who actually commits murder or rape themselves is one of the most evil figures mm. to solely through the power of speech in, you know, in my lifetime. And mm. I'm, again, I'm a conservative. I'm one of these people who kind of thinks that if you spend your life as 
a jackass of enormous you know proportions that you take pride in being a jerk and a liar and evil i cannot get worked up about some of the consequences that you have to face for that and i don't think we have to go full you know Nemoer on this. I just don't think it's true. First they came for Alex Jones, you know. <laughs> it just, I don't I, I don't think the slippery slope works that way. And and so I think the tech platforms are often their own worst enemies and how they talk about this stuff. They often believe their own bullshit about how they're going to transform America and they're going to be these sources of community and all that kind of stuff and I think they're lying. I think Twitter does a lot to make this country worse by shoving stuff in people's faces that they know will make them mad. I think Facebook did that too. I think it's shameful. I, I personally think that the easiest First Amendment compliant solution to a lot of the problems with social media is just simply have, you know, an age requirement for having a social media account. Mm. And there's nothing that violates the First Amendment in that. Getting 13-year-old girls off of TikTok, I think, would be a net good. I don't think sense of our democracy would suffer in any way for it. And... And no, it would not be perfect. Just in the same way that, you know, like, you know, laws against buying, you know, alcohol are not perfect, but they would empower parents. They would make it easier to keep kids off of this stuff. And beyond that, I'm basically in favor of anything that is compliant with First Amendment principles. And First Amendment principles actually allow for a lot more regulation than mm. people realize. Yeah. It seems to me people are very confused about the concept of censorship and how all of this relates to the First Amendment. And they think that, you know, it's in some sense that getting kicked off Twitter is a violation of your First Amendment rights, which is um, actually backwards. Dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I think I agree with everything you said. And, and I guess the only thing I would add, which I, I suspect you would agree with, is that by default, I take a quasi-libertarian company's eye view of the problem. So I just imagine being someone who who started a company like Twitter, or is on the board of it, or is running it, uh, or is staffing it, and who doesn't want certain types of content on the platform, wants to have a platform, you know, in the end, these people should be free to create as biased a platform as they want, right? I mean, it's my, my, the, exactly. the summary I would use here is that Twitter should be free to destroy itself. It should be free to become a platform purely for trans activists. And everyone else gets kicked off, and therefore the market will birth another platform that we'll we'll all be on, you know, all of a sudden. And that's that I think is is the market working. But the counter argument here is that that the only free speech that matters now is digital free speech. There is no public square apart mm -hmm. from Twitter and Facebook and a few other platforms. And when you have when you have someone, you know. I, obviously, I think kicking Alex Jones and even Trump off Twitter was is, is very easy to defend, given what they were doing to identifiable private citizens and and you know leveraging their mobs to dox them and and harass them and all the rest. So it's not just that I don't like these guys. I I saw them ruining the lives of identifiable people at scale on those platforms, um, and that seems like a gr you know a great reason to be kicked off. But the concern is is that. For the normal person who's getting kicked off Twitter, I mean, there are people getting kicked off Twitter for saying things as anodyne as men are not women, right? I mean, right. literally someone got kicked off for life for, for typing that sentence, apparently. And the concern is, is that if you're a private citizen 
you know, or if someone who's who's trying to build a business or build a platform, and the only place to do it is online, and there's no mm -hmm. public version of the public square anymore in which to do that. And then you have cases which, you know, the the coordination of which is really does get your attention when you hear like what happened to Parler, where, you know, Parler is its own platform that has its own ideology that wants to be a bastion of, of jerkishness to some degree. But what you had there were the actual payment gateways and the, and the hosting services. I mean, so platforms like AWS basically banning them. And mm -hmm. in that case, then the burden is really, okay, you, now you have to not only create your own competitor to Twitter, you have to create your own competitor to all of the pipes and rails of our digital infrastructure in order to exist. And that just seems impossible. So what, what, what do you do with the claim that the analogy to ordinary publishing and ordinary gatekeeping and ordinary you know, editorial judgment right. just breaks down? I mean, we're living in a different world now, and the only way to be a person in some sense fully is to be able to be online without threat of cancellation. Yeah, I, I, I am very sympathetic to some of that, for sure. And my sympathy stems in part from the fact that I think it's a real problem, but I'm not sure I know what the remedy is. There was this, you know, weird moment for about 18 months where all these people on the sort of newish right were saying how the only way to fix Twitter is to basically, or social media is to nationalize these things and have basically the government get involved mm -hmm. in it. And like the idea that somehow the government having a department of responsible social media posting seems fraught to me. Yeah. And, and I, I do think like the, you know, the, someone, someone getting banned for saying, there's a difference between men and women or that, you know, men can't have babies or any of those kinds of things. I think the decision to ban people from, for that is indefensible because I think in part, because truth telling is always its own defense. You don't need further arguments, further justifications to defend truth. Telling the truth sometimes can be rude or impolitic or ill-advised. You know, you don't have to say to your wife that that dress does in fact make her look heavy. Um, but although read my book lion on that point, <laughs> I will. Okay. Fair okay. enough. But, um, but my point is just sort of like as a, a matter of policy, editorial policy and everything else, you know, telling the truth may not be a sufficient defense, but it always is a defense. And, but I think that the answer to that is less about arguing about how to force Twitter to have better policies and really about sort of winning some of those arguments in the larger public space. And, and the other point I, I would simply make is I'm, I'm, I'm very much a Schumpeterian when it comes to things like monopolies. And I do not think that Twitter is a monopoly. This is one of these points that I think gets lost on a lot of people because Twitter so dominates the social media space for journalists and public intellectuals and politicians that we seem to think that that's where all the social media is, but there are a bunch of social media apps that are much bigger than Twitter and a bunch of platforms that are much bigger than Twitter. And if you look at things like Facebook, which is, you know, in terms of capitalization, vastly bigger than Twitter and, and of users, young people are basically just not using Facebook as much anymore, at least in the United States and the West. And, you know, one of the points that 
Schumpeter, you know, makes is that monopolies cannot last under their own weight for very long. Very long is very much in the eye of the beholder, mm. but the, you know, this is the point that Adam Smith makes in, in Wealth of Nations where he says, you know, seldom will two people of the same trade sit in a pub or a public meeting place and not, and have not that, the conversation turn to a conspiracy against the public good. And his point about that is that it's in the natural interest of incumbent businesses and powerhouses to rig the system for their own benefit. Schumpeter and Smith's response to that is that only works if the state steps in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if this, if the state grants the power of monopoly through the force of law, monopolies can last for a very long time. If not, then innovations come along and and eat away at monopolies. And you know, you can go back and you can look at all the the supposed permanent monopolies that are in um you know, in Blade Runner, when they're looking at the future, mm -hmm. and almost all of them are gone mm. and, or they've merged or been bought out or just gone. And so I, I think that some of these problems get fixed over time. And I, one of the things that sort of, sort of like the people, you know, marketing off of being censored, one of the things that raises red flags for me in my classical liberal conservative hat is um, when major players, major businesses, beg the government for regulations you know something is going on mm. and you know zuckerberg they run ads they were running they were, facebook ran ads for the last two years begging the federal government to regulate social media and this has there are, if you read the marxist historian gabriel kolko this happened a lot in the progressive era because what happens is the state comes in it creates these barriers to entry and basically establishes these corporate or corporatist entities as too big to fail and too big to have competition. And when Zuckerberg testifies before Congress, he's constantly saying, give us regulation because Facebook can't afford to comply with whatever regulation Congress comes up with. The smaller yeah. players can't. And that makes me nervous because basically that's corporatism and that instantiates as a, a permanent advantage for one player above others and, and protects incumbents from the, the sort of the correctives of the market. Right. Otherwise known as regulatory capture. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jonah, this has been fantastic. I guess I just have one final question for you. I, I know you think about the, the power of stories and, and the significance of the stories we tell ourselves both about ourselves and about one another, uh, about who we are, about you know what we're doing and why, about what's possible for us individually and collectively. What story or stories do you think we should be trying to tell at this point? Uh, I'm going to change it just ever so slightly. Sure. You know, I, I am. You know, I wrote this very dour-sounding book called Suicide of the West, which basically sounds like I'm telling people to take a bath with a toaster, but it actually ends, you know, spoiler alert, with an, what I think is a crucially important piece of advice, which is gratitude. Hmm. We live in a society, you know, my friend Yuval Levin, you know, likes to argue, and I, I agree with him, that conservatism, rightly understood, starts from a place of gratitude. It says, it looks, you look around the world, and you look around your community, you look around your country, and you say, and you find things that are lovely and lovable. And you say, I want to pass these along 
to my children and my grandchildren or to posterity. And you want to conserve them. And this is a very non-ideological right-left kind of point. I recently spoke at Chautauqua Hmm. the week after Salman Rushdie. I actually stayed in the same room as Salman Rushdie. It was a very sobering thing. Hmm. And that audience was a great audience, definitely on the liberal side all in all, sometimes very much so. And they love that place. It's this place that has this spirit of open inquiry and camaraderie and community and engagement with ideas and music and art and all these kinds of things. And a lot of those people are probably, you know, hardcore, you know, uh, Obama voters, Sam Harris devotees, committed progressives. But they're profoundly conservative about Chautauqua, mm-hmm. about what makes it special. And yeah, they're in favor of getting, you know, the place didn't have running water until, I don't know, like 50 years ago or something like that. They, I'm sure they had a thousand and one debates about what ways they have to, what things they have to do to modernize the place while not losing what is special about it, because they're grateful to it. A lot of them grew up in it, you know, or their grandparents grew up in it. And I think that's a way to think about America, is what are the things about America you're actually grateful for? And I think that one of the problems that we have is that we, we don't even, can't even conceive of gratitude. You know, and I, I write books, Steven Pinker writes books, you know, my friend Marion Tupi writes books about how, how good we have it. How, you know, Barack Obama was right about how basically if you had a choice, if you were behind some Rawlsian veil of ignorance and you could pick any one time in all of human history to be born in any one place, a pretty smart decision would be the United States of America at the beginning of the 21st century. Hmm. But we don't, we don't teach gratitude. We teach resentment and entitlement. We teach people to be angry, to feel like they're owed something. And so the story I would basically tell is the story of how. America has been truly improving and doing a better job of living up to its ideals than anybody on the prominent on the right or the left wants you to believe. There's another point that Barack Obama made that I think is absolutely right. The American founding was flawed. The Constitution was flawed. I think people don't really understand the point about the three-fifths clause, but the fact that it was in there was a profound moral compromise that Mm. we should be ashamed of. The thing, the story we should be telling isn't how America is evil because we had slavery. We should be talking about how America is great because it ended slavery at great bloody expense. You know, we, the slavery was an institution found all across the world for thousands of years. And this thing, if you don't, if you don't want to give America credit, fine, give British credit or whatever. But the thing that ended it was this classical liberal philosophy that said, the individual is sovereign, that we are captains of ourselves, that every human being has dignity. It draws on, you know, Judeo-Christian values and all that. We can have those arguments. That's fine. But it was this idea that people did not live up to very much at all until about 300 years ago, and then only in fits and starts. And the story of America, I want to teach all the bad stuff about America because the hypocrisy about a country that was founded on this idea that all men are created equal that had slaves and didn't give women the right to vote. The great thing about that hypocrisy is that it ate at the conscience of this country Mm. so much that we corrected that, that we fixed it, that we lived up to the best versions of ourselves. That's why I love Martin Luther King's, you know, I have a dream speech because what he is doing is he he is invoking the best version of America. He's saying, you know, four score and seven years ago, whatever it was, 
when our forefathers founded this country, they offered us a promissory note that all men are created equal, and we're here to collect. And he played upon Amer the best part of, the, of white America, I hate the term, but uh, the best part of white America's conscience and said, you guys are being hypocritical about the stuff that you claim to hold most dear, and you need to live up to your own ideals. And that's the story of America. This country is so profoundly less racist than it was even 50 years ago. There is not a social scientist worth his salt who would disagree with that. The whole reason why we have this conversation about institutional racism is because lawyers interested in fighting racism ran out of cases hmm. of actual deliberate racism. So they had to have this sort of epiphenomenal argument about unintentional racism. And some of it is real. But this is a good and decent country. It's got room for improvement, but you should be grateful that you live in it for all sorts of material and philosophical and moral reasons. And instead, we teach people as a matter of political discourse and educational pedagogy that this country is evil, that this country is wrong, that this country is hypocritical. And it's no wonder that you get a politics that is based upon those kinds of assumptions. And, you know, that's what Donald Trump played on, is that he played on the white resentment of a lot of white people being told they're racists because they vote Republican. Mm. And, and I think there's a psychic break that came from that. But there is now this sort of twisted thing that the idea of actually defending this country as it is, as something worth preserving, is considered to be a weird, you know, kooky kind of thing on vast swaths of the left and the right. And that is a suicidal choice for a country, particularly one as decent and good as this one is. Hmm. Well, that was wonderful. Jonah, so great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.